Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is July 31st, 2015. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet are Doug, Erica, and Tiffany. Unfortunately, Gabby can't be with us today, so we'll miss her. Um, Today, our topic is the medical mafia. So we're going to be talking about how the, the medical establishment uses mob techniques uh, to achieve their ends. Um, If you believe that pharmaceutical corporations hold the health of the general public in high regard, then it is time to reconsider that opinion. Um, So we're going to go over examples of wrongful death, extortion, fraud, corruption, obstruction of justice, and a bunch of other mafia tactics that the medical establishment is using. Um, So let's... uh, Let's start off with a little bit of connecting the dots here to begin with. Um, we have an article here. Erica, do you want to tell us a little bit about the, uh, the Harvard-trained immunologists? Yeah. Do we have that available? Yes, definitely. So um, in April of 2015, the State of the Nation carried a um, an open letter by a Ph.D. immunologist um, named Tatiana Bukovanovich, and um, basically this was in response to the passage of the California legislation SB 277, where uh, all children attending public schools would be uh, receiving mandatory vaccinations to be eligible for education. And um, this is actually a great article because she comes out and just demolishes the uh, legislative initiative to remove all vaccine exemptions and she calls it draconian and basically a cynical state statue Um, and I'm not going to go through and read the letter but I want to point out some of the things that she shared in the letter and she has a lot of um, obviously history with uh, immunology being a PhD and she wrote a book called Vaccine Illusions. She also um, offers online classes for people who are interested in gaining a deeper understanding of how the immune system works. But basically she uh, wrote an open letter to legislatures um, and she addressed some important topics in the letter. And um I just want to read briefly here what she wrote in her introduction. Um, it says, it is often stated that those who choose not to vaccinate their children for reasons of conscience endanger the rest of the public. This rationale behind most, this is the rationale behind most legislation to end vaccine exemption. Currently, be con- currently being considered by federal and state legislators countrywide. You should be aware that the nature of protection afforded by many modern vaccines, and that includes most of the vaccines recommended by the CDC for children, is not consistent with such a statement. 
I have outlined below the recommend, recommended vaccines that cannot prevent transmission of disease, either because they are not designed to prevent the transmission of infection, or rather they are intended to prevent disease symptoms, or because they are for non-communicable diseases. People who have not received the vaccines mentioned below pose no higher threat to the general public than those who have, implying that discrimination against non-immunized children in a public school setting may not be warranted. And then she lists four vaccines. One is the IPV, the inactivated polio virus vaccine. Tetanus, which is not a con uh, contagious disease. And the acellular pertussis vaccine. It's actually part of the DCAT, the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis combined vaccine. Um, and then the, the uh, numerous types of H influenza um, B, so influenza B, which is part of the Hib vaccine, uh, and then uh, which is hepatitis B. And one thing that she says that's really important about hepatitis B is that it's a blood-borne virus and it does not spread in a community setting, especially among children who are unlikely to engage in high-risk behaviors such as needle sharing or sex. So basically, it's in summary, a person who is not vaccinated with IPV, DCAP, H, Hep B, and HIV vaccines due to reasons of conscience pose no extra danger to the public than a person who is. No discrimination is warranted. And, um, you know, it's uh, the, the information that she gives in the letter is very telling. And then at the end of the article, she gives all this uh, supported reference material to, to, you know, back up her claims. So mm. I just think it's a great um, article for people who want to share this information, you know, um, who don't want to have the back and forth debate. You just, you know, say, check this out and then come back and, and uh, we'll discuss it then. You know, one thing that's really interesting about the hepatitis B vaccine is the minute a baby is born, that's the first vaccine they give. So, it's, you know, pretty scary stuff. It's unbelievable. It would be nice if people did actually, you know, read this stuff. You know, you said, yeah, just give them this article and then say, come back. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I think this article, yeah. like, so many articles about vaccines are preaching to the choir, though I applaud her for actually putting it out there. But what's the chance that it's actually going to change any of these legislators' minds? I mean, they're being yeah. paid for by Big Pharma. But it's a good article anyway. I think everybody should read it who's interested anyway. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, it's, yeah, that, that's just the thing. I mean, it's an open letter, but are any of the people that it's addressed to actually going to read it? Yeah. I'll probably just label her as a quack and move on. Yeah, exactly. It's part of it seems like part of the um kind of groupthink that's been established around vaccinations, like you said, even if somebody is trained, um I mean <clears throat> in the public eye, what kind of higher, you know, sort of uh badge of credibility than you can you have than being Harvard trained? Um, you know, personally, mm -hmm. it doesn't make that big of a difference to me, but in the general 
perception, you know, that's, that's a pretty high badge of honor and sure, you know, as soon as they kind of speak out against the public consensus, then, well, they just must be crazy or, well, she must be doing some drugs on the side or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's just it's, it's, the, the media smear campaign has been so effective. Like people just refuse to actually use their brain cells to think about this sort of thing. They've been told how they're supposed to think about this, and so they will. You know, and, and any excuse that comes up why the information they're being given is not true or um, not even worth listening to uh, supersedes any uh, ability to actually think and, and do any kind of research. You know, the, the media said this, therefore that's what I think. You know, they don't, they don't think that they're doing that, but that is exactly what they're doing. Yeah, and, and basically coming with any sort of documented, you know, information, it's like we're just going to disregard that and we're going to move on to, you know, it's you got to protect the the community and you have to sacrifice your right to choose and your informed consent for the benefit of the masses, you know. Mm-hmm. What was that study was where that? they tried to present uh, people with an opposing view to the view that they already held and it actually mm. activated the pain centers in their brains. Yeah. And so it kind of makes their brains hurt to kind of think outside of the box. Yeah. So in many ways, I think that's what we're facing here. The lines are being drawn so firmly in the sand now. Like unless you're already on the anti-vaccine side, the chances of you crossing over to that side, I think is just getting lower and lower. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of details of that study, but it had something to do with uh, political candidates. Like if you, right, yeah. if they were presented with information about a political candidate that they um, supported, then yeah, it caused this, this like the pain receptors in their brain um, to kind of activate. And I, I remember that the thing was, their, their conclusion was that it actually made people um, more entrenched in their beliefs rather mm-hmm. than taking on that that new information. So it's like they can't, their brain was trying so hard to to not have to deal with this pain that it just it just you know bolstered their already previously held beliefs. So it's mm-hmm. it's so depressing when you think about it the idea that you just there's so little possibility of actually changing somebody's mind when they're really um firmly established in their beliefs. Yeah. Speaking of generally held beliefs, um, it may not, uh, it may be hard for people to wrap their head around essential oils kind of making a difference in brain injury, but we have some other data on that. Doug, do you want to go over that for a minute? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny, like just a little anecdotal um, aside here. I remember uh, it was a while ago when I was um, still in the cooking industry and I was looking for ways to kind of um, kind of expand cooking beyond just, you know, taste. And I was talking to a friend about it and I was like, I was thinking about maybe, you know, studying some aromatherapy and, and seeing if that, you know, I can kind of incorporate some of those techniques. And he was just kind of like, aromatherapy, are you kidding me? And that's kind of like the, the, the widely held view on it. It's kind of like this flaky new age thing that, uh, oh yeah, aromatherapy, let's, uh, let's light up some incense and it's going to cure all our, all our problems. 
But there was a couple of articles printed on SOT recently in the health and wellness section that talked about essential oils, and I found them extremely enlightening. I didn't realize um, essential oils were as powerful as, as uh, these articles are showing. Um, the first one was called Essential Oils and Brain Injuries, What You're Not Being Told. And it was published on uh, July 13th, originally by um, on uh, the livingtraditionally.com site um, by Anya V. Um, and she talks about how our sense of smell is directly tied to the limbic area of the brain, uh, which is considered the emotional center. Uh, our other four sen senses, uh, taste, sight, touch, and hearing, are first threaded through the thalamus before reaching designated areas of the brain. Um, because the limbic system is directly connected to parts of the brain that controls uh, heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, memory, stress levels, and hormone balance, therapeutic-grade essential oils uh, can have unbelievably, unbelievable physiological and psychological effects. Um, so, yeah, she talks about how essential oils have uh, therapeutic stimulating, calming, sen uh, sedative, and balancing properties. Uh, when we inhale essential oil molecules, uh, they travel up through the nasal passage to a receptor neuron that transports it up to the limbic brain, uh, especially the hypothalamus. Um, yeah, so just kind of going through it here. So she talks about studies porn, uh, performed in uh, Vienna and Berlin uh, at the universities there, uh, and that research has discovered that uh, particles called sesquiterpenes, um, which are natural uh, essential, sorry, natural uh, compounds found in essential oils, uh, including things like vetiver, patchouli, cedarwood, uh, sandalwood, frankincense, um, but also, those are the ones that they looked into, but also you find them in uh, melissa, myrrh, cedarwood, and clove. Um, they can increase levels of oxygen in the brain by up to 28%. Um, and an increase in brain oxygen can lead to a heightened level of activity of the hypothalamus and the limbic system. Um, and can have dramatic effects not only on emotions, but on learning, attitude, and uh, many physiological processes of the body, including immune function, hormone balance, and energy levels. Um, so she talks about how you can um, do in inhalation through um, diffusion, uh, which is you could get these little diffusers, uh, essential oil diffusers, that basically just kind of heat the um, essential oil and uh, let those... Um, diffuse those particles into the air, you just kind of breathe it in that way. Uh, you can actually apply the essential oils too, then you're getting the, uh, the, the smell of them through the nose, but also getting them uh, through the skin. Um, or you can even just smell it directly from the bottle. Um, and it's a pretty unexplored area. There are people out there doing um, research on it, but it has yet to kind of get, uh, get the recognition it deserves. Um, so uh, one study she talks about was uh, focused on the essential oil frankincense um, and specifically looking at it in terms of brain injury. Uh, so frankincense works by uh, oxygenation, oxygenation of the blood uh, going to the brain. This in turn will aid in oxygen absorption uh, and when oxygen is absorbed effectively it allows the brain to process and retain information, heal and function correctly. Um, and she points out that these uh, sesquiterpenes are actually able to cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, stimulate the limbic system of the brain and other glands uh, within the brain, promoting memory uh, and releasing emotions. Um, just moving on here. So the research from the universities of Berlin and uh, Vienna found sesquiterpenes increase oxygenation around the pineal gland and the pituitary. 
Um, the bottom line is that essential oils can penetrate not only the blood-brain barrier, but they can also penetrate the skin, follow nerve pathways, follow meridians, and provide healing and balance at the cellular level. Um, yeah, and then there's, there was another article as well um, that was published uh, last month, uh, June 18th, uh, by Joe Battaglia um, called Essential Oils That Stop Cancer in Its Tracks, um, originally published in Prevent, uh, Preventative Disease. Um, so he says, the scientists now recognize the powerful agents that exist within some essential oils, which stops cancer spreading and which induces cancerous cells to close themselves down. Um, it's interesting because he actually goes into the frequency of essential oils, and it's 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 very interesting. Look at things. It kind of gets into the whole um, rife uh, technology type thing, which uh, I mean, he doesn't mention that, but uh, you know, the the whole use of frequency um, as a means of healing. Um, it, it also homeopathy, I think, works. I mean, it's not really established how homeopathy works, but uh, there's a good chance that it works um, via frequency as well. Uh, he says that a, a healthy body from head to foot typically has a frequency ranging from 62 to 78 megahertz, uh, while disease begins at 58 megahertz. Uh, during some testis, testing with frequency and the frequency of essential oils, it was measured that uh, holding a cup of coffee, uh, sorry, holding a cup of coffee uh, dropped one man's frequency from 66 hertz to 58, sorry, yeah, 66 hertz to 58 megahertz. I think that's supposed to be 66 megahertz, uh, down to 58 megahertz in just three seconds, and it took three days for this frequency to return to normal. Uh, other mm -hmm. studies show that uh, negative thoughts lower our frequency an average of 12 megahertz, and positive thoughts raise our uh, frequency um, an average of 10 megahertz. Um, so he says, studying uh, popular essential oils in current use, such as mint, ginger, lemon, grapefruit, jasmine, lavender, chamomile, thyme, uh, rose, and cinnamon, cancer sought out to discover how these oils may combat cancer. Um, so they tested the antibacterial potency uh, in vitro and the toxicology against human uh, cancer cell lines. Um, so, yeah, so that he talks about the machine they're using to, to do this, and it's called a calibra calibrated frequency monitor, or CFM, um, and they've been using it to test the frequency of these essential oils. And one of the researchers says that cancer starts when DNA code within the cell's nucleus becomes corrupted. Um, it seems some essential oils have a reset function. It can tell the cell what the right DNA code should be. Um, now, both these articles actually um, emphasize that you need to be using 100% pure therapeutic grade quality essential oils. Apparently, there's a lot of essential oils out there that are um, use things like alcohol and have a bunch of other constituents in them, and all you're doing is kind of diluting the potency of these things and um, not, you know, you, you don't want to be using things that aren't the therapeutic grade, um, or you're probably not going to get the results that you're looking for. Um, so, yeah, the author talks about a, an, a, another uh, MD named Robert O. Becker, um, who wrote a book called The Body Electric, and he validates that the human body has electrical frequency. Um, Nikolai Tesla said that if you could eliminate certain outside frequencies that interfere in our bodies, we would have greater uh, resistance towards disease. Um, so therapeutic-grade essential oils begin at 52 and can go as high as 320 megahertz. 
so rose is 320. Um, frankincense is 147. Uh, lavender, 118. Myrrh, 105. So he lists a bunch of the different ones here and what their different frequency is. So all those things, by taking, by using these um, frequencies, you're introducing that frequency into the body and can actually raise your own frequency um, so that you're no longer at the level of um, disease. Uh, breast mm -hmm. cancer cells are mostly destroyed by cinnamon, thyme, chamomile, and jasmine oils. Um, chamomile killing up to 93% of them in vitro. Um, even more effective was thyme oil. Uh, led to a 97% kill rate. Um, another study published in the Journal of Industrial Crops and Products found that chamomile oil harnesses, a powerful, harnesses powerful antioxidant properties. Um, they looked at 11 different essential oils, including lavender, thyme, winter savory, um, sweet fennel. Um, they found that Roman chamomile had the highest antioxidant activity. Uh, and frankincense oil, once again, is the cancer killer. Uh, the author states frankincense separates the brain from cancerous cells. Uh, sorry, frankincense separates the brain of the cancerous cell, the nucleus, from the body, uh, the cytoplasm, and closes down the nucleus to stop it reproducing corrupted DNA codes. Um, frankincense oil is effective because it contains monoterpenes, uh, compounds which have the ability to help eradicate cancerous cells uh, at the onset of their development. Um, so apparently there's 17 different active agents in frankincense oil that will um, combat cancer. So I thought that it was is all frankincense really Frankincense also known as uh, boswellia? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, same, yeah. the same one. And, you know, people will take boswellia, um, you know, capsules uh, to uh, lower inflammation. So there's a lot of uh, activity in that herb for sure. So when you wanted to use it in your food, how are you thinking of approaching that? Because, I mean, it's not just taste when it comes to food. I mean, it's also a, a smell sensation, too. So what was your plan? Yeah, I didn't really have a plan. It was something I was thinking about uh, looking into, and I just didn't really ever kind of get there. Um, it, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was it was uh, it was something that I was kind of like looking at, you know, senses beyond taste as far as uh, mm -hmm. as as you know food goes. And I mean, you know, just the spices and herbs that you're using will have that kind of effect as well. Um, but no, I never got to the point of actually using any sort of essential oils in, in cooking. There is an issue, too, about um, what essential oils are actually consumable, what ones can, mm -hmm. can actually be um, taken in. And I know that a lot of the ones that you can buy in, like, health food stores and stuff will say not for consumption. Um, I don't know if that's because they haven't been kind of certified in some way or if there is actually any kind of danger in using them. Um, but to get, mm. um, you know, edible grade essential oils, you need, you need to kind of get the cream of the crop uh, ones that are out there. You, you can find them, but, uh, but they're, a little, they're, more, they're very expensive um, and yeah. they're, they're a little bit trickier to find. You definitely right, need to look at it. Um, if you want to create a certain atmosphere for your meal, say if you want to have a romantic meal or something, you can still uh, diffuse some essential oils on the table while you're eating. And that can mm -hmm. <laughs> provide yeah. some kind of burn you can even put a, during your meal. You can even put a drop or two in like a candle or something like that. That actually yeah. diffuses it as well. Yeah. That reminds me of a technique that I saw in a documentary where there was a, a chef who put air that was infused with <clears throat> the scent of pine needles um, into a pillow. 
and then would poke uh, little, tiny little holes in the pillow and then put the plate on top of the pillow. So over the course of the meal, it would deflate the pillow and kind of envelop the person at the table with this smell. Wow. Wow. Well, you see that with lavender. You see that with lavender a lot now, lavender-infused honey, lavender-infused sauces. You know, I mean, I don't know if they're using the essential oil or the actual flowers, but that seems to be kind of a, a, a very popular essential oil to be putting in food is lavender. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's hop into our topic uh, for today. What we're going to be talking about the medical mafia um, and how they operate, very similar to organized crime. And uh, kind of part of what inspired this topic was um, this guy uh, Peter. I don't exactly know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, Gotchi. Gutsky? Mm-hmm. I'm not certain. Um, he is. Uh, he graduated as a Master of Science in Biology and Chemistry in 1974 and as a physician in 1984. He's an internal medicine specialist, um, worked with clinical trials and regulatory affairs in the drug industry from 75 to 83, uh, and in Copenhagen uh, from 84 to 95. So he's, he's pretty credentialed. Uh, he's been published more than, or he's had more than 70 papers published in the big five medical journals, <clears throat> and his uh, works have been cited over 15,000 times. So he's really established in the medical industry, and um, he wrote this book called Deadly Medicines and Organized Crime. Um, and he, uh, here's a just kind of a quote from that book. Um, Our prescription drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer in the United States and Europe. Around half of those who die have taken their drugs correctly. The other half because of errors, such as too high of a dose or use of a drug despite contraindications. Our drug agencies are not particularly helpful as they rely on fake fixes, which are a long list of warnings, precautions, and contraindications for each drug. Although they know that no doctor can possibly master all of these. Um, Major reasons for the many drug deaths are uh, impotent drug regulation, widespread crime that includes corruption of the scientific evidence about drugs and bribery of doctors, and lies in drug marketing. So um, Gosky is just trying to get this idea out there that the medical industry is, is acting as, you know, an organized crime syndicate, um, which I think we can see a lot of, and this is not necessarily just an analogy or something that we might draw a comparison to as like a metaphor. Um, This is actually how they operate. Uh, We can see Mm -hmm. um, from this article on SOT that's about Gotchke's book, um, during testimony in an Australian class action case, emails between Merck employees presented labels such as neutralize neutralized or discredit next to doctors' names who criticized the drug Vioxx. One email said, we may need to seek them out and destroy them where they live. Hmm. Um, Even worse were allegations of Merck damage control by intimidation. This has happened to at least eight clinical investigators. I suppose I was, uh, this guy, James Fry, is professor of medicine at Stanford, says, I suppose I was mildly threatened myself, but I have never spoken or written on these issues. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of things that have gone on in the industry here that are not just kind of shady corporate practices. They come right down to out-and-out intimidation. Uh, and the same way the, the mafia, you know, would come in. And I think most people, you know, even if you're just familiar from kind of like, you know, American films on the topic, that the, the, the tactic is to, you know, go to a small business uh, late at night, smash the windows, break in, destroy everything, and then come back the next day and say, well, it looks like there's some dangerous people around here. You might need our protection. So you can pay us X dollars a month, you know, to protect you, even though they're the ones that cause the damage. So the, um, the medical mm-hmm. industry operates much the same way. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it's so kind of like with they, a bunch of vaccines that birth and shoot you up, and then come back afterwards and say, "Well, you have this sickness. Let us just give you this, and we'll protect you." Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What's What's clear with it is just the 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 lengths that they'll go to to get their drugs onto the market and being sold by doctors. You know, despite the fact that. You know, this is based most of the time on, you know, doctored evidence um, and doctored safety studies, these kinds of things, just just to get the like, you know, the end, the end game of making money, having another blockbuster drug is the thing that's that's needed in their eyes, you know, and, and screw the public, screw the harm that it's going to do. Uh, we have to do, use any kind of underhanded method to get this stuff out there. Yeah, there was a great article on SOT last year called FDA Uses Mafia Tactics for the Benefit of Big Pharma by John Rappaport. Uh, activist posts the website. And, and we've talked about him before. He writes about the medical cartel in the United States. But basically he talked about a, an interview with this um, FDA reviewer called Ronald Kavanaugh. And Basically, um, the guy was like threatened, his children were threatened, and, you know, like you're saying, it's like a criminal mafia protecting its clients, which is big pharma, and um, they use mob strategies, you know, they go after your credibility, they intimidate your family, they, you know, in, in, you can lose your job, like it's it's really frightening, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if we want to set the stage here a little bit, let me just play this quick little clip here. I want to make them an offer again with you. (laughs) If you go back in history and you look at uh, John D. Rockefeller, and I think this started like in the late 1800s or the early 1900s, you know, a big, wealthy, rich family, and he wanted to control the whole medical field. So he started donating to all these medical schools, um, but the stipulation behind the donations was that they, the medical schools could only teach allopathic-based uh, medicines or allopathic treatments. Um, and then he hired some guy named Abraham Flexner, and he would go around to medical schools um, and other like schools of homeopathy or chiropractic and evaluate the treatments that they thought. And so they would only give funding to the schools that, you know, pushed allopathic medicines, allopathic treatments. So um, in 1906, there was a Flexner report, and it persuaded lawmakers to create legislation that they would only give um, licenses to doctors that were trained in giving out, you know, patented 
drug drug based treatments versus you know more natural or holistic uh, treatments. So, I mean, you could kind of consider J.D. Rockefeller as the godfather of modern medicine because of mm-hmm. the, the the mafioso type tactics that he used and he started using. Um, but I came across this article this morning. Um, it was on the Super Articles blog, and it's written by Paul Phillips, and he came up with nine similarities between Big Pharma and the Mafia. Mm-hmm. So the first one is that both Big Pharma and the Mafia are filthy, stinking, disgusting, rich, and they make obscene mm-hmm. amounts of money. Uh, the second one is that both Big Pharma and the Mafia have uh, side effects of their business. So if there was a gang somewhere in the country that killed over 200,000 people every year, people would be up in arms, but that's what, you know, Big Pharma does. And I think in many ways, Big Pharma is a lot worse than the Mafia because their tentacles spread all over the world. You might have gangs here or there or mafioso here or there, uh, but Big Pharma is worldwide. Um, Mm -hmm. The third one that he came up with uh, was bribery. Um, Big Pharma and the Mafia, they both bribe uh, politicians into making decisions in their favor. They give payoffs and generous donations. Um, The fourth one was they pay off mass media. So Big Pharma uh, uses their wealth and influence to make all these direct-to-consumer commercials, um, bias media coverage. They omit information about natural remedies and only focus on uh, allopathic or drug-based treatments. Um, The fifth one was extortion. Um, So the prices of medications are, say it takes a dollar to make a certain drug and they'll ramp up the price like 10,000%, like there's a a $1,000 pill for hepatitis treatment, or people spend $10,000 a week on chemotherapy. So basically it's like pay up or die or your money or your life uh, Mm -hmm. when it comes to big pharma. And the sixth one was silencing. So the mafia and big pharma, they'll silence people who dare to speak out against them. Like big pharma will uh, issue gag orders. They'll discredit holistic practitioners, they'll engage in character assassination. And I think that was in the article, uh, Big Pharma and Organized Crime. They're not as different as you might think, or they're more similar as you might think. Where Merck had their hit list, but they Mm -hmm. would put uh, practitioners on this list and go after them with a campaign of harassment. Um, Mm -hmm. The seventh one was uh, controlling the opposition. So any competitor that steps in, they want to compromise their business. Um, One famous case was the Royal Rife case, but the same thing happened with Gaston Nessens and uh, Dr. Brzezinski, which we'll get into. Um, The guy, I think he was a doctor back in the 1800s, Semmelweis, and his crime was telling doctors to wash their hands before operating on patients because they would go straight from the uh, autopsy room into the delivery room, and the women were all dying from these purple fevers. So he was 
harassed so much he ended up in a mental institution and died there. So um, mm. you can even tie it to these alternative health practitioners in Florida who died mysteriously. Um, so the eighth one was run-ins with the law. So the mafias, they've been, you know, taken to court for, you know, extortion or racketeering and things like that. But so was uh, Big Pharma that been sued, I don't know how, how many times, for serious health damages. And the last one is threats and coercion, which is really just under the guise of laws and legislation like the vaccine, uh, mandatory vaccine laws that are coming in. So that was a good article. It should be on site soon, but yeah, Big Mafia and Big Pharma use a lot of the same tactics. It's pretty scary. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Big Pharma is like the macro version of um, the Mafia. You know, Mafia works on kind of a small scale. They're in individual cities. Mm -hmm. They buy off the police you know, all those sorts of things. And then, but then you have big pharma, which is like on a worldwide scale and they use all the mm -hmm. same kind of tactics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the mafia wishes it had the money that big pharma had. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's crazy. Looking at a list of uh, some of the largest court settlements, pharmaceutical court settlements here, GlaxoSmithKline settled for 3 billion in 2012, $3 billion. Um, mm. The violations were off-label promotion, failure to disclose safety data, paying kickbacks to physicians, and making false and misleading statements concerning the safety of their drugs. Um, <clears throat> Pfizer in 2009, 2.3 billion. Johnson and Johnson, 2.2 billion in 2013. Um, Abbott Laboratories, 1.5 billion in 2012. Eli Lilly, 1.4 billion in 2009. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and these are massive, massive amounts of money that they're paying out. Um, and you, you would think kind of logically that something like that would bankrupt a company, but no, I mean, they're going strong. These companies have hundreds of billions of dollars to, to play with, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's just a drop in the bucket for them. But another way that uh, Big Pharma is much, much worse than the mafia, in my opinion, is because Big Pharma has this kind of veneer of respectability. You have all these doctors with mm -hmm. these big medical degrees and PhDs, and they're the heads of departments here and there. And Mafia, they're seen as just, you know, some some thugs that have their lead pipes and break people's legs, but hmm. it's really the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the white lab coat kind of uh, lends some kind of credibility. You know, as soon as somebody's got on a white, a white lab coat, it's like suddenly they have this this kind of respectability, and everybody you know takes takes what they have to say um, just at face value, really. When you know the the mafia, everybody kind of you know understands what's going on there, and it's something that they kind of tolerate, I guess, more than anything else. But you know, the 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 white lab coat with this credibility and stuff, everybody thinks that what they say is gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then if you don't comply, you know, you get, at least in the U.S., you know, they start to enact laws and, and get Congress involved. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, there was a great article on thought about the 21st Century Cures Act, and uh, basically it's a giveaway to the pharmaceutical industry, removing any safety mechanisms that are supposed to keep the public protected from unsafe drugs and medical devices. 
you know, and, and most people don't even know about it. It's not like it comes out on your your daily news source or on Fox mm-hmm. News about about how these things are being passed through Congress to basically take away, you know, um, one of the aspects is informed consent, you know. Uh, one of the things the article notes is that informed consent by patients in drug trials has tra- traditionally been sacrosanct with exceptions made only when consent is impossible to obtain or contrary to a patient's best interest. But another clause in the proposed law adds a new kind of exemption. Studies in which the proposed clinical testing poses no more than minimal risk, a major department, uh, departure from cur- current human subject protection, protections, it is not clear who gets to determine whether a given trial of a new drug possesses a minimal risk. So informed consent is crucial, not only for the credibility of modern medicine, but for your individual liberty. And so they're saying that 21st Century Cures Act diminishes the rocks on which modern medicine is based, informed consent, individual body autonomy, and the Hippocratic Oath. You know, and, and nobody knows about it. Unless you go searching for the information, these kinds of things get passed and sponsored and co-sponsored by Democrats and Republicans, and there you have it. All of a sudden, you no longer have informed consent. Yeah. Yeah, and you're well, talking about the role... Are you talking about the role of the media in all of this? Um, the, I'm sure a lot of people, our listeners, are aware uh, or remember in March of this year, the uh, the teenage girl from Connecticut who was forced into chemotherapy. She was ordered uh, mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. chemotherapy against her um, wishes. And there's an article um, now in uh, uh, on CBS News um, saying that the Connecticut teen... Uh, with cancer breaks silence over forced chemotherapy, that she's <clears throat> happy that her cancer is in remission, but still upset that she had no choice in the matter. Um, mm-hmm. And she, you know, in the article it says here too, uh, I was really happy, she said, about learning that her cancer was in remission. It kind of made it a lot easier to accept everything that has gone on here. Knowing now that mm-hmm. the chemo wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, I probably wouldn't fight so hard against it. Huh. So mm-hmm. he, you know, you can even see, and of course, this is not to discredit. Yes, it is good that her cancer is in remission, but you can see how this is used in the media to kind of mold people's minds. Somebody reads this article, and the next time they hear somebody, you know, um, talking negatively about chemotherapy, they're going to be like, you know, shut up, it works, mm-hmm. just take it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and her cancer is in remission, but for how long is the question? I wonder if we'll come across any articles written about her in a few years and see how she's doing then. Yeah. How much damage does the chemotherapy do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been yeah. clearly shown to uh, to cause extra tumors and even different types of cancers. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting watching that uh, Brzezinski documentary. Um, there was one guy on there who was talking about how they were looking for alternative treatments for their child because they had some kind of aggressive um, brain cancer. And he was, he started taking a look at the uh, chemotherapy that the, the doctors were recommending and, you know, all the different chemotherapy drugs. He said he was looking at it and all of them came out in like the 70s and 80s. So it's like it's, mm-hmm. it's hardly any kind of like cutting edge research or anything like that. They've been doing the same kind of thing for, you know, 20, 30 years 
and it's just it, it the the whole approach is just nuke it like absolutely mm-hmm. you know napalm the cancer and you know whatever happens outside of that is uh, is just you know the cost of doing business so it it was he that was kind of the one thing that that led him to look for alternatives because he's like this is this is ridiculous why would I subject mm-hmm. my child to this? Well, and wasn't the in that case didn't they find that she died from brain damage that resulted from the treatment and actually not from the cancer? Oh, that wasn't that case, but yeah, that was what they mentioned there. That um, they after after going through chemotherapy, uh, this one family found Dr. Brzezinski and started undergoing his methods and uh, completely eradicated the cancer. But the uh, the child ended up dying from um, the side effects of the chemotherapy. Um, so despite the fact, and, and even in the autopsy, um, her body was found to be completely 100% cancer free. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was the chemotherapy that killed her. So what was the title of that YouTube video? It's um, uh, Brzezinski. Cancer is a serious business. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. Brzezinski is spelled B-U-R-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. Um, really yeah, highly his case is uh, very. Yeah, his 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 case is really uh, interesting. It, just to look at in terms of um, how the uh, these uh, medical establishments like the FDA and the AMA uh, work in these mafia style. Um, Practices. So he he discovered a um, a protein that was uh, he found it to be uh, very high in the average person, but anybody who had cancer um, had a very low level of this protein. So he started experimenting with injecting it um, into uh, cancer patients and started having amazing results. Like you know their their cancer would go into remission. In some cases, in like uh, you know after weeks of uh, of therapy, they would actually see. Um, their tumors shrinking. Um, so, you know, it's basically there's no side effects or no real side effects to speak of. And, of course, you know, the medical mafia didn't like this so much. And the, the documentary goes into just how much he has had to fight to be able to do this therapy that is helping people. And, you know, you really get a clear picture of how these organizations like the FDA um, have no care whatsoever about the results and how um, mm-hmm. how these these people are being helped. You know, they only are interested in stopping somebody from honing in on their racket. You know, it mm-hmm. it really like you know they don't they don't care that these these this therapy is helping people. And by cutting it off, they're basically giving these people a death sentence. They only care about the uh, the fact that you know they didn't approve this this method. Uh, therefore, they're not making any money off it. So it has to stop. Yeah. And with uh, yeah. Dr. Brzezinski, uh, he was under all this pressure from the FDA. The Texas Medical Board kept coming after him to try to get his medical license revoked. They took him to trial, was it like four times? Uh, the judge ruled in his favor. Uh, the mm-hmm. FDA was threatening him with jail. They raided his office, uh, came up with this propaganda campaign against his anti-neoplastin therapy they confiscated his medical records. They really took this guy to task. And they still are. You know, yeah. he's managed to kind yeah. of fight it back, but they're still, they have not let up the whole time. Mm. I think probably part of the reason <clears throat> that that infuriates him so much is that he's actually working with the system. He's going through 
the process of getting FDA-approved clinical trials and actually trying to do it the quote-unquote right way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I think I think he's doing it the right way anyway. When you watch this documentary, you can see he's clearly very uh, intelligent, very methodical, uh, scientific doctor who's found something that works and is going through the steps to make sure that it's safe um, and <clears throat> really just trying to help people. Um, and that's, I think, probably what infuriates them so much. I mean, you know, you, you rarely see or hear stories about the, you know, the snake oil salesman on the corner who's like, this mysterious mm-hmm. bottle of liquid cures cancer, you know, and then having that person be targeted by the FDA. No, they target people who have actual cures, you know, who are trying mm-hmm. to do it in the in, a, in an actual way. Um, and, yeah, it's just, I would really highly recommend uh, our listeners to check that documentary out. It's um, it's infuriating, but it's it's highly enlightening. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most infuriating parts for me was, like, all the time that they were harassing him and taking him to court and trying to throw him in jail. They were working behind the scenes to kind of take over his, uh, yeah. his discovery. Yeah. And yeah, they, he actually even tried to work with them so they could like duplicate his studies, but they wouldn't do his studies in the way that he did them. They kind of changed the protocols just to prove that mm-hmm. his anti-neoplastin didn't work, which is just really, yeah. really dirty. Yeah. Well, they paid off one of his, uh, his, his assistants, uh, one of, one of the, the doctors that was working with him. Um, so she ended up coming over to their uh, to their side um, because mm-hmm. you know who knows how much she was paid off for it. But uh, and then tried to patent his stuff behind uh, <laughs> behind his back. So the whole time they're mm-hmm. fighting him in court, saying you can't do this. This is a this is an illegal substance that you're using. They're meanwhile working to try and try and take it out from under him um, and disprove mm-hmm. it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure if they managed to to get the patents and force him to stop using it, you wouldn't start seeing it in other clinics or anything like that. You, it would, it would get, just get buried. Uh, they mm-hmm. did a very similar thing, actually, to, to Royal Rife um, in the early part of the century. Um, same kind of thing. Rife was a, a brilliant doctor who uh, studied optics as well and invented this uh, microscope that to this day has not been um, duplicated. That, and he was able to see um, extremely magnified um, uh, versions of of these uh, um, these these different microbes and viruses and things. He, he, it was the first time anybody had actually seen a virus was using his microscope, and through experimentation with this microscope, he discovered that by um, matching the frequency of these different microbes, he was actually able to destroy them. So he was doing all these experiments. He he was uh, you know inducing cancer in rats and then able to cure them. Um, and his trials moved on to humans, and there was 16 different human subjects. And I think 14 of them he was able to cure in 70 days, and the other two um, it took 90 days. But he completely eradicated cancer from them. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you know, it was the same kind of thing. Like they, the, he he had uh, hired an engineer to to duplicate his microscopes at a um, a more practical level because his machine would, like took up the size of a room. Um, and then yeah, the AMA uh, came to this engineer and uh, paid him off $10,000 which I guess back in the day was a, was a lot of money. But uh, then they tried to work through him to steal his technology. And to uh, and the whole time, you know, they were fighting him in court and all this other kind of stuff, calling him a quack. 
but working behind mm-hmm. the scenes to try and duplicate it and patent it and, and get that kind of stuff going on. So it's amazing how they always use this kind of same tactic. Yeah, and didn't Royal Rife, you know, they kind of, with all his all the harassment and persecution, that kind of drove him to drink, and he kind of mm-hmm. died penniless and in obscurity? Yeah, they drove mm-hmm. him to drink. And that was just simply the pressure of having to appear in court and, you know, yeah. fight and all that kind of stuff. That that drove him to start drinking, and by the end of his life, he was taking Valium as well. Um, so, yeah, they just, they ruined him. They completely ruined him. The, the, it was the head of the... Um, the AMA at the time, whose last name was Fishbein, and he was just a scumbag. He was eventually fired mm-hmm. because of corruption charges, but uh, he was he was totally working to eradicate the quote unquote quackery from uh, from medicine. And yeah, he, mm-hmm. he targeted Rife and and was was kept him tied up in court for years and years and years and, and drove him to drink. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. Well, there's another guy who also developed a. Uh, uh, um, he was working in optics too, and he made a microscope. He called it a somatoscope, and his name was Gaston Nassens. Mm. And there was a good book written about him. I think it was called The Trial and Persecution of Gaston Nassens. Uh, he's mm. from, I think, the Montreal area in Canada. So he was able to see these tiny little microbes in people's bloodstreams too, and he came up with something called 714X which is an enzyme that kind of boosts immunity, and he cured some people of cancer. So they did the same thing to him, took him to uh, court and just harassed the hell out of him. Um, Yeah. So it happens all the time. Yeah. It's really interesting, too, because you see, you know, I I don't know how many people are keeping up with the the, the issue in, uh, in Florida, where doctors are, are mysteriously turning up dead or uh, disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks, it, it kind of looks, I almost see it at like, uh, you know, they, they tried their old methods with uh, Brzezinski and it's clearly not mm-hmm. working. So they've, they've kind mm-hmm. of like decided to approach the problem with a hammer and just like anybody who's working with, uh, with anything that, that potentially could uh, cure cancer or cure some kind of chronic diseases, you know, honing in on their racket, in other words, um, are mm-hmm. just disappearing or turning up dead. Um, it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of, you know, we don't really know what's going on in those cases. Like it's still very, uh, um, up in the air and, and nobody really, really knows, but it looks like a lot of these doctors anyway, were working with, uh, with, a um, a, a substance that, um, kind of activates the immune system and, and allows the body to kind of kill off these cancer cells that are being, uh, um, yeah, like there's, there's a, a substance in their blood called nagalase which is um, mm-hmm. preventing the immune system from actually attacking these tumor cells. So uh, he's injecting them with a, a substance that kind of bypasses this nagalase and allows the immune system to activate and is, is kind of taking on these, um, these, these tumors. Um, so mm-hmm. it, 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 like I say, it's still kind of unknown at this point, but it looks like maybe these doctors were working with this substance and having great results, and lo and behold, they're turning up dead. Yeah. Sounds to me like they were just whacked, to use a mafia term. But it just yeah. kind of smacks of the desperation that Big Pharma is going to now because they don't want to take people to court because they really don't have any case and they don't want the science presented that proves them wrong. So they'll just go out and kill people now. Yeah. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder, like, they're, you know, the, the hypnosis is so firmly in place. Um, 
so many people are are on board and have drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, do they really need to, to cover this stuff? I mean, apparently they, they think that they do. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, like you said, we don't really know what's <clears throat> what's happening to these doctors. Um, but if we're to kind of infer and speculate a little bit and, and talk about the possibilities, um, it just makes me wonder, like, do, you know, do they really need to cover this stuff up? Because you can show people this kind of thing, like, in plain view, just like with Brzezinski, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of people as well. I've seen a lot of comments online that, like, Brzezinski is a quack. And I'm like, how the hell do mm-hmm. you, you know, like, if you see the results of his work, you see, like, all of these patients testifying under oath in front of Congress saying, I was cured, my child was cured. You know, we mm-hmm. were trying to tell the truth here. Um, even then, in the face of all that evidence, people will still say, you know, this is quackery. And you just need to trust your doctor and shut the hell up, essentially. Yeah. And so it, mm-hmm. it makes me like, you know, can't they, can't they just stop where they're at? I guess <laughs> that's my <laughs> what I'm wondering about. I don't think so. I think you know, it's. I think there's that, that a lot of those comments that you see on blogs are actually paid. Um, I don't think that members of the general sure. public usually have that much invested in these kinds of things. So I think that what what you see is just the the smear campaign. You know the the mm-hmm. like if, if the, the whole thing. If we call Brzezinski a quack enough, it'll just embed itself in the public consciousness, and nobody nobody will question it. Which you know, more they, that makes sense because that's always worked in the past, right? I mean, all you have to do is look at the the vaccine uh, situation in today's uh, society, and and you can see that you know people just repeat it. You know, we our monkey brains just take that that um, line of thought on, and then you can't deny it. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there, there's these coordinated campaigns to um, to smear people and to smear these these methods. Um, you know, most of these people aren't going to look into it, so they just take the party line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the AMA is getting desperate. I mean, there was an article on Citizens for Health talking about how they just prepared a gag order for medical dissenters because they're angry about mm. what they call quack MDs, and they're they're mm. going out to actively defend the profession, you know. And they kind of quote Dr. Oz because he's got so much, uh, you know, he makes such a an impact on mainstream TV, and so they release this document about how they're going to monitor, you know, um, press releases and public statements and they want to denounce medical information through TV and radio and websites that these people are, you know, like you guys were saying, quack doctors. And what's interesting Mm -hmm. is the AMA only has like 14% of doctors in the U.S. that support it, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What it is? What a, one of the um, articles was saying that they uh, spend 19 million dollars lobbying on Capitol Hill in 2014. <laughs> mm. Unbelievable. It's actually too bad that um, Dr. Oz is kind of the one who's getting all the press on this. Like, you know, they're like they're saying we want to silence quack doctors like Dr. Oz. I think Dr. Oz is totally controlled opposition. Because the fact of the matter is, the stuff that Dr. Oz talks about is 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 pretty minor. I mean, he's talking like weight loss supplements and things like that that don't even really work. So should Dr. Oz be shut up? Yeah, totally. 
a guy, you know, but um, <laughs> he and you know, you put him into this category, and then um, people who are actually doing real work and actually making real progress are are looked at as just another Dr. Oz. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think I I totally think he's just controlled opposition. Like, you know, we'll put this guy out here who's who's hawking weight loss supplements, and then um, anybody who comes along with a cure for cancer just gets grouped in with the same thing. Mhm. Yeah, and it's more just skewing the information, you know. Like instead of people actually getting any sort of real information, it's like let's just muddy the waters till people are exhausted from it all. Mhm. And in a lot of ways, they kind of just draw more attention to it with their tactics. Like I hadn't even heard of Nagales before this. All these doctors came mm-hmm. up dead in Florida, so. You kind of have to wonder, is that whole GCMAF Nagales, is that something we should be looking into, or is that a distraction? I mean, it's yeah, not like it's a fairly a fairly good uh, product, and it does people some good, mm-hmm. but you always have to question when they draw your attention to something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it kind of seems like they're just trying to shut shut it down before it could leak out. But uh, mm-hmm. it does seem to have had the opposite effect because, like you say, I'd never heard of it before, and uh, and now I've been looking into it more and more, and it actually does look rather promising. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I should say uh, well, I think- that well, we, we'd like to uh, welcome uh, callers today too. If we, uh, I put this number in the chat, but if anybody is listening who's not in our chat room right now, um, if you have any personal kind of anecdotes or commentary about the medical mafia uh, and the topic that we're talking about, feel free to call uh, 718-508-9499. We'd love to talk to you. Well, I think that uh, another aspect that you know, all these articles are writers that compare big pharma to the medical mafia. I mean, there's one big aspect that they're missing, which a lot of people do miss. I mean, one of their common characteristics is, you know, the the fact that both institutions are overrun with psychopaths. I mean, these mm-hmm. people who have no empathy, they'll do whatever it is to get what they want. They'll, you know, kill people. Um, they really just don't care about people and their health, really. Um, so, like, they're both they're both just psychopathic organizations, and they prey after non-psychopaths, like the the doctors who are into really caring for their patients and really trying to help them with alternative cures. So it just seems like it's psychopaths against normies once again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of goes from the ground up of these institutions, too. I mean, it was interesting to read about the methods that they use to actually get their drugs out there. Um, so they'll perform all these studies on their drugs, and any study that doesn't give them the results that they like, they just throw out. Mm-hmm. Um, then they hire uh, spin doctors to take the the information from the studies that they did like and spin it in such a way that it makes it look like it is, you know, a wonder drug and has no mm-hmm. side effects, and it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to do. So then they hire um, a ghostwriter to write up the study. Um, they'll pay off a doctor to put his name on it, even though he didn't write it or have any part in the trials whatsoever. 
And then uh, they take it to the FDA and say, look, this thing's amazing. It's been published in a, a peer-reviewed journal. And the FDA mm-hmm. that gets like millions of dollars for every drug that they review um, from these pharmaceutical companies, of course, says, oh, yes, this looks great. So then all of a sudden it has FDA approval. And despite mm-hmm. the fact that the FDA doesn't do any kind of studies themselves or do any kind of safety trials or anything like that, they just take a look at the, uh, the information that's already been put out there by the pharmaceutical company who obviously has, um, you know, a conflict of interest there. And then they put it out there. And then, you know, the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical reps go into, into overdrive, uh, showing it to doctors. Doctors who don't have time to take a look at the studies themselves, and even if they did, there's no contradictory information out there because the pharma has controlled it from the ground up. So then, uh, you know, they get a, a, a pharmaceutical rep in a push-up bra who comes in and uh, <laughs> takes them out to dinner and wines and dines them and tells them, you know, this is really something that you should be giving to your patients. And, you know, is it any wonder then that, like, months later or years later, there's suddenly all these these people coming forward who are saying there's, there's these huge side effects and this drug is not doing what it's supposed to do and having all these toxic uh, side effects. Um, and then, you know, the, then Big Pharma just pays the, the couple of billion dollars that, uh, the, uh, that, that they get sued for, um, which is just a mm-hmm. cost of doing business for them. And they continue on. And the whole thing repeats itself over and over and over again. It's amazing that the industry has any credibility whatsoever, but people just don't connect the dots on these things, you know, especially the doctors themselves who are are pushing these drugs on their patients with very little information. You know, they don't actually know what it is they're giving to people. So even if the doctor is a good person um, and doesn't Mm -hmm. want to harm patients, which, you know, I'd I'd like to believe most doctors are, uh, they just they don't know any better. So they just they're they're just pushing this stuff out there. It's it's an unbelievable. And even if they if they do know or they have suspicions or they've seen that certain drugs are hurting people, they fear speaking out because you know every doctor that does speak out they get crushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. The 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 farm industry is not above any any level of of intimidation or, uh, you know, smear campaigns or, or whatever it is that they have to do to shut up dissenters. It, it's mafia mm-hmm. techniques. Yeah. <clears throat> and just like you said, you know, how people are intimidated into uh, staying silent. Um, that mm-hmm. makes me think of the, uh, it's not exactly on our topic, but very similar um, the issue with uh, Monsanto and how they treat, um, you know, small farmers, um, even to mm-hmm. the point of, you know, I don't know if everybody's aware of this, but I think a, a good deal of our listeners would be aware that um, <clears throat> there's more than a few cases of Monsanto seed that has blown off of a truck into a farmer's field, uh, taken mm-hmm. root in the field, and then the Monsanto agents come around, they take the sample. Um, they say you're illegally growing our crop, and then they sue them for everything that they have. Um, they take mm-hmm. their land, take their farm, intimidate them. Um, not not even just intimidate, but out and out destroy these people's lives mm-hmm. and their livelihoods. Um, I mean, it, it, it's more. It's it's endemic of the way massive corporations are are operating. Um, <clears throat> and if we look at the you know the legal. Um, definition of a, uh, a corporation as being like a person um, so that they can operate in a certain way under the law, but that they can't be prosecuted the way a person could be. 
um, because mm-hmm. they're made up of many people and there's nobody to essentially punish. And even when they are punished for their misdeeds, um, you know, like we've been talking about, they just shell out the money. You know, it's no big deal. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like we've been talking about a picture of Godfather, like, not really worried about this one. Bada boom, you know, pay it off. Yeah. <laughs> bada boom, bada bing. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. They'll even go so far. Like there was the, the case in Australia with the whole Vioxx thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show. Though that That company, they actually made fake journal articles. And like made up a fake journal. I can't remember uh, what it was called off the top of my head, but it was uh, oh, it was the Australian Journal of Bone and Joint Medicine. That that journal doesn't actually exist. But they would go to the FDA um, or I guess whatever the Australian version of that is, and say, oh look, we had our our our, um, our studies printed up in this journal, so it's a peer-reviewed uh, uh, journal. So uh, so you know our, our drug is safe and it's uh, it's effective. So they approved it based on a completely fake journal. It's, it's, it's like unbelievable. Like how did they not think they would get caught for that? And that's even silly in itself because you don't even have to make a fake journal. You can go to a real journal and just put a fake study in it and nobody would even notice. Yeah. It's like they just got lazy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and look at Dr. Tenpenny, you know, who tried to go down to Australia and just give information to parents about vaccine dangers, and she received bomb threats, you know, talk about mafia mm-hmm. tactics, and and ended up mm-hmm. canceling the tour out of fear for her life, just because she wanted mm-hmm. to give, again, parents information about informed consent. Sure, go get your vaccinations, but here's some information you might want to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Well, I don't know. Do we have uh, any um, personal stories about this uh, from from you guys? I, I've never had like a <clears throat> direct intimidation, but I, um, you know, on myself because well, clearly I'm not a doctor, but. Uh, I, I was just thinking about um, a case uh, a couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago now, but I was playing soccer and I dislocated my uh, finger. And at the, the center joints of my ring finger on my left hand, um, you know, came out and part of the finger was, it looked really bad, but it was basically just dislocated. But at the time I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I need to go to the hospital. So I went, but I didn't have insurance. <clears throat> they gave me, <clears throat> Excuse me. They they gave me one shot of Novocaine, um, pulled it out. Actually, sorry, took an X-ray and gave me a shot of Novocaine, and then pulled it back into place and sent me on my way. Um, and that was like eight hundred and fifty dollars for that. <sighs> you know, and it just makes me think like if that happens to me again, I'm just gonna bite on a piece of wood and pull it out myself. Like, <laughs> had I known, <laughs> you know. So, Use some essential oil. I know that there are some, you know, cases where you really need to go to the hospital. There are certain things, you know, if you if you've broken your arm and your bone is sticking out of the skin, then yeah, go. You know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm all really for like, emergency medicine, but 
as far as trusting a doctor to care for any kind of chronic condition or any kind of ailment that I might suffer, I stay away from them. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I have a similar. Oh, I was just going to say, Jonathan, we had a similar experience. Uh, my husband had to have a, a, a microscope uh, take pictures of his stomach for ulcers. And it was, uh, again, we had no medical insurance, and it was a $5,000 procedure. And then uh, they basically wanted to do this major invasive surgery, and because he had a pre-existing diagnosis, you know, they wouldn't give him medical insurance, and it was actually what led us to do the research on the diet, where we just decided, well, you know, we'll spend $200 at a naturopathic doctor to kind of get a, a way to start dealing with this on our own, and then really it was changing the diet that ended up healing him in the long run, you know. So mm -hmm. the, the doctor made the initial diagnosis for a very hefty sum, but it was really our own research and work and thanks to Science of the Times and the forum that we started to gather information on how to deal with the stomach issue that was curable without having, you know, this really invasive surgery at, a, at an extraordinary price, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part yeah, of, probably, you know, what we're doing. The, the way the establishment has so much money, not just the drug companies themselves, um, but, you know, the insurance companies are getting paid, uh, you know, out through this medical establishment as well. Um, it was mm -hmm. uh, years ago. Now, this is more than 10 years ago, but I remember a case from Ohio that I had been reading about where a woman had a surgery. And honestly, I'm not, I don't remember what the surgery was, but the, the point of the, the case was that um, she was being hounded, you know, for payment. And she was a, a, a poor woman. So she couldn't make the payment, and she was trying to come up with it. She was being, being reasonable and not ducking them. She was trying to negotiate with them, how can I pay this off? <clears throat> and in the course of this case, it came out that the <clears throat> the actual cost of the surgery, um, with including paying the doctors and paying the hospital for their materials, so this, this includes like uh, base cost of materials plus you know profit for salaries and all of that kind of thing, was like twenty thousand dollars, and that the cost of the that they were charging was ninety eight thousand dollars. Wow! You know, so you're tacking on seventy eight thousand um, dollars, and that's you know, it's just ridiculous the the amount of cost that goes goes into this kind of stuff. Like just yesterday, I saw an article floating around uh, Facebook that hospitals are charging up to eight hundred dollars for a bag of saline solution that costs one dollar to make. Or eighty-three dollars yeah. for an aspirin, when you could buy yeah. it at the dollar store for two fifty for yeah. a whole bottle. I'm Talk about mafia yeah. extortion. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting, Jonathan. I mean, you're talking about our personal experience with this kind of stuff. My my personal experience isn't really um, to do with kind of having to be hospitalized or anything like that, but just um, when I was writing a blog a couple of years ago, I had a, a health blog um, that was kind of, it was in a fairly mainstream website, um, and yeah, I, I would I would publish different uh, articles on various topics and things like that, and I always knew that I hit a hot button issue when there would be comments on the blog um, that were pretty obvious to me coming from like page shelves. 
by people who were out there who were just scanning the internet for anything that they could, uh, you know, kind of crap all over and, and put, push the party line. It would usually happen on ones where I was talking about GMOs. That was like the big one. Um, and it's funny because the, the, the comments were always completely cookie cutter. Like, I know a farmer who was using organic this and it, it you know, it, it didn't work at all. And then they switched to GMOs and everything is fine now, blah, blah, blah. It was always very like cookie cutter. You know, I would respond to the comments and they would never respond back. So it, it became very obvious to me that uh, the, these were, were, you know, paid commenters. And um, mm -hmm. it was really funny because I, I would comment on them a couple of times and, and call them out and say, well, this is obviously a paid comment. And it was funny because the, the, the people who were reading it, they would put comments underneath like, well, how do you know it's a paid comment? Like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they bother hiring people to do this kind of thing? But to me, it was blatantly obvious that, that that's what was going on. But yeah, GMOs were the big one. But um, yeah, even even sometimes when I was talking about alternatives to, you know, cancer treatments or um, something like that. And, and, you know, I would be very careful about that kind of stuff and say, you know, you need to check with your doctor. Don't, uh, you know, don't don't switch your, your procedure just because you've read this article. But um, nonetheless, you you just get people on there who were, were slamming it and, you know, calling it quackery and all this kind of stuff. But it was it was so transparent that these were these were paid um, commenters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's very common. Here we yeah. have the, I mean, uh, these guys have a huge budget, so they, uh, they, 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 you know, they won't, people, people think, you know, they, they have in their mind that pe they, these companies wouldn't go to these ends to do this. It's like, well, why, you know, why would they pay so much money just to sway public perception? But it absolutely goes on. There's been documented cases of it. Um, so yeah, the, the idea, you know, it, it, it's people think, well, they, you know, they wouldn't, why would they bother? Why would they do that? You know, this is just a small time blog. Like, why would they, why would they bother with this kind of thing? But believe it, they are paying people 24 hours a day to scour the internet, to spread the party line. That's the way it works. Yeah. Hey, we have a, uh, a caller on the line. Hi caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, hey guys, this is Elon. I'm calling from North Carolina. How are you all doing? Good. Hey, Great. Hey, welcome, Elon. Hey. So, uh, really terrific show so far. Um, I just wanted to chime in and uh, and mention also uh, how much I got out of the uh, documentary on um, uh, Brzezinski, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, it's mm -hmm. been a couple of years since I watched it, but. Um, just wanted to say you know how much of a um, an impression that documentary leaves as far as how controlled uh, any kind of progressive or uh, innovative uh, medical approach is to healing um, so this also kind of reminded me of um, an anecdotal experience I had when I was a teenager I had a a doctor uh, who I went to just a kind of urban version of your country doctor. He um, he treated people who you know had HMO insurance, and he told me about how he was trying to um, help people who were diabetic. And what he explained to me was that, um, and this was many years ago, but it left quite an impression on me at the time. And uh, after I saw the Brzezinski uh, film, it the bigger picture, as it were, made a lot more sense to me. But basically, mm -hmm. uh, he was able to wean people off of insulin. 
<laughs> and um, and for years had tried to uh, work with the I guess it's the uh, American Diabetic Association or uh, you know whatever whatever it's called, and um, he had a an idea for a controlled experiment uh, in a hospital to be conducted over a period of time that would show how people could be safely weaned off of insulin because he, he had success doing this with some of his patients. And um, they never wrote back, or if they did write back, it was uh, always some kind of cursory uh, thanks for his uh, information, but they never followed up with him. And my impression at the time was that the guy was totally sincere, had this idea of how he could treat people. And, um, and you know, this big organization just didn't want anything to do with it. So just another kind of um, anecdotal story to show that, you know, it, it's, it's not only the cancer industry, it's, it's also mm -hmm. the diabetes industry and... Um, you know, I'm I'm sure that uh, this type of thing is pervasive in any type of industry mm -hmm. that the government is, you know, has a hand in uh, perpetuating as a as a health problem. So, just wanted to add that in and and tell you guys it's been a terrific show so far. A lot of great dot connecting and uh, and thank you for doing it. Thanks sure, well, thank you very much for calling. Sure, I'll be listening in. Have a good day, folks. Hey, you too, Ron. Bye. Yeah, big pharma and big medicine—they have so many rackets going. Not just uh, the cancer racket, the diabetes racket, uh, the AIDS, HIV racket. I mean, there's just so many of them. It's just—it's mm -hmm. hard to wrap your mind around the the very firm grip that they have on just everyone's thinking throughout the whole world. Yeah. I mean, people have, a lot of people just have no idea that there's alternatives. And I think they'll go to yeah. any lengths to make sure that people don't know. And if, you know, the small number of people in the underground might know about things here and there, but they'll do anything, yeah. like you said, Doug, with the paid chills and everything, just to make sure that this does not reach a wider audience, that there are alternatives out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like a great big pyramid scheme and you 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 know, they need more and more bricks at the bottom of their pyramid scheme to keep things moving. So, they'll they'll do anything they can to defend that uh that pyramid and get, you know, anybody who's experiencing any kind of issue, even like the like like heartburn, you know, they want to mm -hmm. get you on proton pump inhibitors. That's what they want to do to suppress that stomach acid and you know, and people just, they don't know that there's actually an alternative out there and the damage that these these uh, drugs can actually do, or even the psych drugs, you know, that, that mm -hmm. we, we did a whole show about the psych drugs, and um, there there are actually alternatives out there, things that are, are worth trying. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you know, it's such an effective screen that they've put up that you can't, you, it's very difficult to penetrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're getting desperate. Uh, you now you you see the desperation with like these mandatory vaccine laws that they're trying to pass in the United States. You know, I mean, for years it was like, what is it like, ninety seven percent of people comply with with 
mandatory or with vaccines. So now they want to make sure and target the three percent that don't. So they're passing mm-hmm. federal legislation to do that. I mean, it's it's downright despicable, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, the the idea that the establishment has people's actual health in mind is so ridiculous now. I mean, it, it should be anyone who, and I I don't want to be insulting, you know, and say anyone with two neurons firing or anything like that, although I, I feel that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but really, um, anyone who can kind of force themselves oh. to to take the time to look into these issues um, just take a little bit of time. You know, if you, if, if you're in that camp that kind of thinks, well, yeah, there's some bad corporations, but they're really trying to help or, you know, yeah, maybe the government's a little bit evil, but it's just some bad people that are in there. It's like, no, this is, um, systemic. It's, it's part of the way things are. It's part of the way they operate. Mm -hmm. It's in the manual as a standard operating procedure. Um, and it's, it's part of the kind of, I guess, uh, waking up process to see, you know, how these things work um, in society. I mean, it, it was just, um, <clears throat> it was a struggle for me with uh, a, a member of my family talking about um, gluten and wheat and having this person say, well, you know, but we is the staff of life, you know, and, and why would it be bad? You know, and it's, you know, wasn't it, wasn't it put here by God to, to feed us, you know, and these are all, I consider for somebody who has never really delved into the topic, there's a reasonable point. Somebody who has, you know, grown up with and has religious beliefs, um, they apply those beliefs to things in their life. Um, And it's the same kind of thing with uh, authority, you know, seeing the medical establishment as an authority. uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people who have, and I don't want to pick just on religions here, but it's a good use case scenario. People who have been raised with that idea, of um you know there god gives authority to certain structures so that we can live a certain way so for mm-hmm. me to be a respectful you know um you know christian or muslim or you know uh, uh hindu or anything um whatever your structure is and that you're taught to respect and obey your authorities that that mm-hmm. is the problem I mean, re, you know respecting other people and obeying people who have shown that they actually have something to teach you. Those are two very, very different things than just mm-hmm. than blankly kind of respecting and obeying authority. Um, <clears throat> so I, I feel like uh, really, really bad and, and a lot of uh, um, kind of empathy for people who have been deceived into this mindset um, that I should just take the drugs that I'm given, you know, or I should just believe what's in the newspaper because they've, they don't know, you know, they don't know otherwise. And for them, they're like, well, what, what's wrong with that? You know, why am I being wrong by thinking this? Because this is what everybody thinks. Um, yeah. it's, I don't think people are willfully saying, you know, screw that guy. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I think people generally want to be good um, <clears throat> and want to be just and see justice served. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, when when the authority has entrenched itself to the extent that it has, um, that we see now, and like the point that Elon made, not just in the cancer industry, but also in many other industries, um, 
even in the, the you know electricity. If you look into the story of uh, Tesla versus Edison back in the day, and Tesla was just run into the ground because Edison had much more power and corporate influence. You know, this this kind of story echoes itself over and over and over. Um, yeah. And it's just it's really unfortunate. I think the way to combat that is to educate yourself. Um, look at the evidence. Look at what works and not what you're told works. You know, find find it out for yourself. Yeah, and it's funny too because it is it's it's so insidious the way these these uh, the the big pharma thing works because I think you're right, Jonathan. These most people are basically good, and in a lot of cases they actually want to help. And you know it's 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 amazing how they can funnel this this drive in people. Um, you know there is a certain desperation in trying to you know let's cure cancer, let's cure all these chronic diseases, and they funnel it into these things like you know walk for the cure, or you know a run, um, all these different events that are supposed to be raising money for research, um, and and you know they they take these these people who actually do they do care. You know, a lot of these people have family members or maybe themselves are afflicted by these diseases. And they're like, how can I help? What can I do to help? Oh, okay, they've got to walk for the cure. So I'll go do that. I'll raise money. and well, I mean, you know, they never really put two and two together that they're raising money for the, the most profitable industry on the face of the planet. Why do they need money raised? That doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. at all. You know, it's like these hundreds of billions of dollars that these pharmaceutical companies have. And they, and and why so why do these people need to raise money for it? So you know they take this drive in people, this this like that good people, you know people of conscience who want to do something, who want to help, and then they they turn it around and 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 funnel it into just making more money for them. And they're not interested in cures. They have absolutely no interest in cure. That's pr- that's proven with the way they have attacked people like Rice and uh, and Brzezinski and any number of other. Uh, people who are actually, you know, caring researchers who who really honestly want to help, and they they completely, you know, ruin these people and turn everybody's attention away from that and put it into walk for the cure or the pink ribbon campaign. Mm-hmm. Let's put a pig a pink ribbon on a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and uh, and you know because we we want to help with breast cancer. I mean, you know, it's so ridiculous, but it, yeah, it really is it, it kind of ice it buckets on our heads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what useless, useless things to have people doing? It's just, it's just unbelievable. It's like, it's like busy work. Keep them distracted with this stuff so we can, uh, we can keep the racket going. Yeah. It really is maddening. It's just um, uh, this past uh, winter, I had noticed and commented to a friend of mine that there was a pink ribbon, you know, raise money for the cure, uh, bubble gum machine, uh, in a in a local school. And it's like you don't know what's in those those bubblegum balls. <laughs> that yeah. probably causes cancer. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And oh, I had, it, I had it. I had it. Well, I was going to say I had a similar experience with the breast cancer cure. I was actually on an airplane a few years ago, and they before they made the announcement to buckle your seatbelt, you know, they basically asked everyone on the plane for money for a breast cancer cure. You know, I mean, it was just oh, mind blowing. Yeah, you know, so you're like, wait, I'm feeling guilty if I don't offer money, but what is the airline doing uh, raising money for a breast cancer cure, you know, and that they would get the actual undivided attention of every single passenger on the plane? Yeah. Mm. 
and it works via guilt. They do that at checkout lines too when you're uh, you know paying for your groceries or whatever it is. Oh, would you like to uh, you know give us a dollar for whatever thing? And you you know you, you feel like it's so guilt-inducing and stuff. And I always say no, but I always feel mm-hmm. like you know embarrassed because oh I'm the guy who doesn't want to help. You know it's it's so oh yeah. And Jonathan, you were talking about uh, run-ins with family and stuff like that. I've I've had a, a, an ongoing issue with my sister because she does the MS walk every year. She has a friend who has MS, so she yeah she cares. She wants to help out, but uh, so she always comes to me for money every year. And every year I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I don't support those organizations. And she gets so angry about it because she perceives me as an an uncaring jerk. You know, somebody who doesn't want to, you know, give, a, you know, it's a, it's like five bucks, man. Come on, you can't give me five. I'm like, no, I'm not. I, I refuse to do it. I will not do it. Um, and you know, it's it's totally, you know, a, a bone of contention between us. You know, she's she. I, I think she's learning that it's kind of pointless to ask me anymore, but she always does. So. Mm. Well, that's totally yeah. understandable. You don't want to give your energy to support a lie. And by yeah. donating, yeah, I think you're probably hurting more people than by not donating because whatever they mm-hmm. come up with, with a small percentage of the donations that they actually use for research, actually does no one any good. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah, like, right. you know, it's basically refusing to put energy into that system. It's, it, it is just yeah. symbolic. I mean, my five bucks isn't going to make a difference, and I could just placate her and just say, okay, here's the five bucks. But it's, it's, like, it's like a statement to the universe. It's me saying, no, mm-hmm. I refuse. I am not going to support this system. I don't agree with it. I'm making my stand here. Yeah, and to it being a, a, a lie, you know, the thing that kind of really gets my goat about the, <clears throat> the fundraising, especially for cancer cures, is like the cure exists. It really does, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I realize there, there might be some, yeah, yeah, there might be some people who are listening and say, "Well, you're so cocky. How can you say that?" It's been, I've I've read many many cases. Um, I mean, if you just look into Brzezinski alone, um, not to mention there are many other cases where a lot of these doctors have cures. Um, you know, there's at least ten you know, viable cures for different types of cancer that are not on the market right now, but that are available. Um, even just a ketogenic diet has been shown to reduce and eliminate tumors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is not like small potatoes either. Brzezinski is curing stage four brain cancer. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really over the top. So when they say you know race for the cure, or walk for the cure, or we need five bucks for the cure, it's like that's that's bullshit. You you don't need it. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is actually pay attention to and listen to the people who are dedicating their lives to to finding and have found cures for these diseases, but they're, mm-hmm. they're pigeonholed and intimidated uh, and crushed by the industry and being helped by the government, you know, for nothing more mm-hmm. than profit. That's what it's for. You know, I, mm-hmm. I could put my tinfoil hat on and say that it's for like population reduction and stuff like that. And it might be, yeah. I, I don't know, but you, <clears throat> you can clearly unequivocally show that it's for profit. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you can pay out three billion dollars, three thousand million dollars, <laughs> you know, on, on the drop of a hat to settle a, a lawsuit and do that many times over and over and over, you, you've got enough money, you know. Mm-hmm. And continue to get FDA approval for those drugs. You know, it, it's it's 
you know, instead of an example being set, like maybe we should stop letting these guys put these drugs on the market, you know, that they continue business as usual, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so I guess we would encourage everybody to look into these things, um, do your own research, um, you know, don't take anybody's word for it. Uh, don't even take our word for it. You know, we're mm -hmm. we're not telling, we're not trying to tell you what to think. We're telling you to go out, think for yourself, do the reading, um, get some books, spend some time online, um, really read about this. And <clears throat> you know, when you come across an article that says, you know, turmeric fights tumors, don't just say, oh, uh, great, now I know that turmeric fights tumors. Like, look up why. You know, go mm -hmm. you know, go down the rabbit hole and, and look into these things. It's this idea that because I didn't go to medical school, I must not be smart enough to learn this information. That's not true at all. Um, yeah. You can spend, you know, some time in the evenings researching. And, you know, even if you can't, you know, draw on a whiteboard the, um, you know, the molecular diagrams of all the things that are, that comprise the solution and exactly why they work and what's happening here and, name off the Latin names of all these things, you can understand more deeply, um, you know, how things work and the mechanics of, of what we're putting into our body. And you can come to that understanding on your own. Um, so I, I think that's the, an idea that if, if, if it's not already completely lost, it's, it's being lost. Um, the mm -hmm. idea that you, that you can actually find this understanding on your own by doing research and the internet, mm -hmm. you know, while it's, it's it's a, a tool of disinformation. It's also a very powerful tool. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's <clears throat> there's no longer. It's my personal opinion that there's no longer a need to go to university. You know, I I think that mm -hmm. there's something to be said for, um, you know, tutoring or being an apprentice mm -hmm. of somebody who is a bona fide expert. That's that's kind of a different case. But um, you know, saying that you have to go into debt to go to university to learn certain things is not true at all. You can with mm -hmm. the, with the internet and with um, information that's in books, you can learn this stuff yourself. Going to the primary source. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> well, let's uh, let's take a little time to go to Zoya's pet health segment for today. She's got an interesting one for us on uh, telepathy in pets. So I'm curious to see how this is going to go. Um, you know, I think we all have understood different kind of situations where our pets seem to be reading our minds. So Zoya is going to cover some of that for us. And uh, we'll come back after that with a recipe for homemade uh, pickles, lacto-fermented pickles. Mmm. Yeah. <laughs> so here's Zoya. Hello. And welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week I'm going to share with you another interesting talk, this time by the author Rupert Sheldrake, who shares his research on dogs who know when the owners are coming home and other examples of pet telepathy, like cats who know when the humans plan on taking them to the vet. Well, enjoy! One of the commonest kinds of telepathy that we heard about with cats uh, was their ability to know when their owners were planning to take them to vets. Uh, 
many cats respond to this intention by disappearing. And when I'd received several hundred accounts of this behavior from people in America, Britain, Germany, and other parts of the world, um, it seemed that this was a very common kind of experience. And of course, when it happens, it's annoying to the cat owners because uh, they, they have to cancel the appointment or search all over for the cat. Um, and people soon learn that they, if they get out the carrying basket, the cat's going to disappear. So people don't get the carrying basket out, and the cat still disappears. Um, sometimes people make their appointment for the vet when they're at work, so the cat doesn't overhear the telephone call. <laughs> but the cat still seems to know. Um, in order to quantify this, we did a survey of all the veterinary clinics listed in the North London Yellow Pages. There are 65 clinics li listed. And uh, my assistant rang up them all and asked um, whether they ever had a problem with people uh, missing appointments with the cat. 64 out of 65 said this was a very common occurrence. It happened all the time. Um, the remaining one said they'd, it happened so often they'd abandoned an appointment system for cats. People... <laughs> People just had to turn up with them. Um, we had a lot of interesting stories, usually not from the vets themselves, but from their receptionists or assistants, who were the people who dealt with appointments. And here's a typical story from a veterinary receptionist in North London. It's not always the cat basket. The clients know that once they produce the basket, there's not a hope in hell of catching the cats. <laughs> so it's usually before the baskets have been brought out. People say they get home around 5.30 p.m. and the cat's always on the doorstep, but the day of the appointment, he's not there. I think they've definitely read their thoughts because the owner's not been in all day, so they can't have seen the owner's upset or behaving any differently. So this is, this is one of the things cats are particularly good at. The cats are extremely sensitive, but usually when the owner's intentions directly concern themselves. Um, dogs um, often pick up when people are planning to take them for walks. No one finds this surprising if it's at a routine time or if the dog sees them getting out the lead or putting on their coat or shoes or whatever. The interesting thing is when the dogs do it, when it's an unusual time and the dog's in a different room, even before a person's got up from a chair, they, they, some, many people have told me they just have to think, I'm going to take the dog for a walk, it's a nice day, and the dog will come bounding into the room really excited. This is something we tested by experiment with a woman who lives in the north of England um, she had five dogs, and she said this happened all the time. In this experiment, we shut up the dogs in an outbuilding with a video camera running so we could observe them. And at randomly chosen times, she thought for five minutes about taking them for a walk before doing so. On the videos, what you see is that most of the time the dogs are just lying around doing nothing. But during this five-minute period, they get progressively more excited until by the time she comes in, they're sitting in a semicircle around the door, ex eager and expectant, um, as she comes in to take them to the walk. And they don't do that at any other time. In this case, of course, we can rule out the obvious standard explanations in terms of body language, uh, dogs picking up intentions, routine, etc. 
Many animals know when their owners are planning to give them a treat, um, when they're just thinking of getting up to go to the fridge or a cupboard to get out some special treat, the dog or cat will come bounding in, excited and expectant. The main thing that I've studied in detail, uh, as I mentioned this morning, is the ability of dogs to know when their owners are coming home. In the course of my research with animals, um, after my book, uh, this book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, was first published, I got a whole new lot of stories coming uh, to me and many more cases coming to my attention, uh, which are absolutely fascinating. And some of the most interesting concern parrots. I'm now convinced that the most dramatically impressive telepathic animals are parrots, particularly African greys. The big advantage of parrots is that some of them can speak. People with dogs and cats often say, if only they could talk. Well, quite a lot of parrots can. And um, I've been working in the last uh, couple of years with what may be one of the most remarkable uh, parrots in the world. Uh, it's an African grey called Enkisi that lives in Manhattan. I heard about this first from uh, Enkisi's owner, Aimé Morgana, who got in touch with me by email through my website, having read my book. And she thought if I was interested in the kinds of things I'd written about, I might be interested in her parrot. She told me that her parrot had a vocabulary of hundreds of words and that she trained it to uh, use language in a kind of natural way, talking to it as you'd talk to a baby or a young child. The, the, the N. Kesey's vocabulary is now about 700 words and he speaks in sentences. He's uttered at least 7,000 different sentences. Now, the best studied of all parrots is a parrot called Alex that belongs to a woman called Irene Pepperberg, who's now at MIT. Pepperberg's parrot, after 20 years, has a vocabulary of about 200 words. The importance of Pepperberg, though, is that she's demonstrated beyond doubt that parrots can use language intelligently. They can form abstract concepts. They can do, in fact, all the things that chimps and gorillas can do. Animal people have trained chimps and gorillas to speak using American Sign Language. You can't speak them, teach them to speak in English using ordinary language because they don't have the right vocal apparatus. But they do use their hands and make in making gestures. And there have been very impressive results with um, starting in the 1960s with chimps and gorillas teaching them to speak in American Sign Language. It's been shown that they can use concepts, they can use abstract uh, they, they can use abstractions and they have what psychologists call a theory of mind. In other words, they can understand that others have feelings and beliefs, a kind of self-consciousness. What Pepperberg has shown is that parrots can do all this too. And why this, and they can actually do it better. Why this was so shocking, surprising, and when she started doing this controversial, because nobody believed this would be possible. People were ready to credit chimpanzees and gorillas with some limited mental capacities because they, they're like us, they have the same kind of DNA and they have brains rather like ours, although smaller. The parrots are literally bird-brained and, and their brain is less than the size of a walnut and they don't have speech areas the same way we do. They shouldn't be able to do these things. Yet what Pepperberg has shown is that Alex can use language 
in abstractions. She can learn, for example, Alex has learned the word red. So you can show Alex a tray of objects, all different colors, and say, give me the red one. And the parrot will bend over and pick up the red object, even if he's never seen that object or anything of that shape before, showing that he's abstracted the word red from particular things. He can do this with shapes. He can do it with things that are same or different. And a variety of concepts that human children acquire by the age of three or three and a half uh, have now been acquired by Alex. Well, we've shown with Enkisi that uh, the same kind of thing has happened, but even more so. Enkisi's linguistic skills and development have more or less paralleled those of ch human children up to about age four or three and a half. Enkisi's now four. Of course, we don't expect this development to continue. We're not expecting him to go through uh, graduate school, get a PhD and so on. Um, but his, his abilities are quite remarkable. This is the main point of um, Aimé's research, to study the communication and use of language. She's trying to find more about animal minds and how you can talk to parrots. But as a byproduct of this research, she noticed that um, the parrot was responding to her thoughts by saying what she was thinking about. So she'd be looking at a magazine, at a car, and uh, the parrots at the other end of the room can't see the magazine, and, and the parrot says, that's a, that's a great car. And she's looking at her people dancing on television. She says, they're dancing. This happened so many times. Uh, she kept a log uh, after I first got in touch with her. Um, she started keeping a log. There's now more than 600 spontaneous incidents. Well, thank you, Zoya, for sharing that with us. That was really fascinating. I read a little bit of Rupert Sheldrake, but I had never heard that before. And I yeah, didn't think anybody had creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the parrot that can read minds is pretty cool. I, I've, I've had that experience with my dog, um, for sure, you know, where just at some random time, we'll start thinking about going for a walk, and she comes into the room like, what are we doing? <laughs> Well, <clears throat> let's see here. We've got for our um, recipe today uh, lacto-fermented pickles. Um, so it, for anybody who's not aware, um, lacto-fermentation is fermenting uh, vegetables. Um, and you can actually deal with berries, too, um, with uh, salt water. Um, mm. It's the... Uh, the main, you know, most people are aware of sauerkraut, and sauerkraut is made with lacto-fermentation. It's cabbage submerged in salt water. Um, but you can also do this with a lot of other vegetables, and uh, I've made these before, and it's a really nice uh, pickle recipe. So if you like pickles, but you're avoiding the ones at the store because they have sugar or a bunch of preservatives and stuff in them, you can make your own. Um, so this is for a one-quart uh, mason jar, which most people have or at least have access to. You can get these from most uh, grocery stores or hardware stores. Um, you want uh, pickling uh, cucumbers. Um, so if you can, you know, get organic. Uh, and if you can't, then just get the, the best ones that you can find. Um, <clears throat> but you want the cucumbers to be of a certain size so that they can fit into the mason jar with about like two inches of headroom over top of them. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so you want to uh, mix uh, a quart of water, 
uh, with two and a half of tablespoons of sea salts, or I, I like to use real salt, uh, which is the kind of salt that has all the minerals and stuff, and it looks kind of dirty. Um, but that works really well for this process. So two and a half tablespoons of salt uh, with one quart of water. Um, and then the very base recipe is that you just shove the cucumbers into the jar dry um, so that they kind of pack in, and you want them to hold themselves down under the water. Um, and then you pour the brine solution over top of them, um, put a paper towel or a cloth uh, towel over top of the jar and secure it with a string or a rubber band and let them sit out at room temperature for seven to ten days. Um, and then when you're done, um, take them out, you know, taste a little bit to see how pickled they are and then throw them into the fridge and they'll last quite a while. Mm-hmm. Now you can spice this to taste. Uh, if you want to make dill pickles, uh, I would take uh, one head of dill, you know, the top, that kind of sprig of dill that comes off the top, throw that in um, underneath the cucumbers before you stuff them into the jar. Uh, you can also add uh, peeled garlic, uh, black peppercorns, um, mustard seeds. Um, if you want to add some, some kind of bites to it, uh, get a fresh horseradish root and add like peel off some strips with a, uh, with a potato peeler and add some strips of fresh uh, horseradish in there as well. Um, so this is something you can totally play around with too. I've made this before with uh, mint and ginger and it came out really well. Um, oh. I've done it with a number of different spices. Um, so you do want to do some, some research, find out if what you're putting in there lacto-ferments properly or not. Some things don't. Um, and so you want to just do, do a little reading on that and make sure that what you're including will lacto-ferment. It won't spoil uh, in, the, uh, in the solution. Um, but this is a really simple recipe for pickles, and it takes, like I said, seven to ten days. Um, and, you know, in warmer weather, six to seven days, but in the winter it takes ten days and maybe a few more. Um, but you just let them sit out on the counter and then put them in the fridge when you're done. And you'd be surprised. They okay. they come out like, they're like real pickles. They're nice and crisp. You mm-hmm. can slice them up. So, that's a delicious. <laughs> yes. Very good. I've uh, I've done quite a bit of lacto-fermenting myself, and I've made pickles a few times. I use the big fermenting crock to do it, so we get nice big batches. But I've even done it cool. with uh, just regular regular cucumbers, not pickling ones. I uh, I told my roommate to pick up some uh, some cucumbers, and she ended up picking up the wrong ones, like just regular conventional cucumbers. So I just cut them into oh. slices and put that in, and it, it worked fine. It worked great. They actually turned out really nice. Cool. Cool. Um, so yeah, and they use the fermenting crock like a larger container. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you use a weight to hold yeah. them down, or do you just kind of stuff them in? Yeah, no, they come. It comes with a weight, so I just I use that just to to keep it under the water. Yeah, it works cool. works really well. One of the big benefits of it actually is that it's got all those um, uh, beneficial bacteria that um, that you uh, get whenever you do lacto-fermentation, uh, which you don't really get from the store-bought ones because they pasteurize everything and kill off all the bacteria. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you get to get some uh, some good uh, gut inoculation with that too. Boost the immune system. Yeah. So we encourage our listeners to make some pickles this week. Um, And, you know, (laughs) even if you don't, uh, just do some Googling on lacto-fermentation and see, uh, you know, play around with it, experiment with some different things. 
so we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in today. Um, and uh, be sure to tune in to the other shows on the SOT Radio Network. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Tomorrow we have the Truth Perspective at 2 p.m. Eastern, and then on Sunday, uh, Behind the Headlines, also at 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, and we'd also like to encourage everybody to check out the documentary that we were talking about today, Brzezinski, uh, Cancer is Serious Business. That's available on YouTube, so anybody can watch it. Um, it's really fascinating and, and very uh, enlightening. So mm. thanks, everybody. And thanks to Alain. Thanks to Alain. Yeah, thanks to Alain. Thanks, Alain.